Okay, guys. Um, so this is the second installment of this sermon series, Hearts Over Clubs. It's just one of those metaphors that just fits perfectly. It's kind of a two-point metaphor. The heart being a, uh, well, obviously this is a reference to cards, right? The heart being a representation and a metaphor of our love for one another and clubs being a metaphor for, frankly, clubs, our allegiance from one camp or another. And this subtitle, unfortunately, bears connotations because of things going on in political news. But the, the subtitle is what, Why Love Should Trump Our Petty Fighting. Trump is a verb, not just a noun. So um, today's the second installment of that. And if you will turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to be in verses 7 through 13 today. wobbly music stand, or I'm wobbly. No, it's the music stand. Cool, nice. We we are going to read the scripture, but first I I do want to give something in the realm of introduction. Uh, We are going to talk a lot about food sacrificed to idols, and if you guys attended church last week, you heard a, a really good, robust summation of what that means. However, if you weren't here last week or you didn't quite catch it, you still don't quite understand, or maybe you've forgotten, I do want to refresh over that. Uh, Obviously, we don't really have food offered to idols readily available to us as far as we know, now that I think about it, um, as far as we know, and so it, it is a little bit foreign to us. Food offered to idols, what we need to focus upon is that this in this passage of scripture actually has very little to do with the Corinthian religious practices of sacrificing food to idols. It more has to do with their economy and marketplace. So common to the Jewish faith as well as to the Gentile faith, there is a lot of animal sacrifice where a worshiper would bring an offering to his deity and present it as a sacrifice. Um, Let's back up a little bit. The consumption of meat for food wasn't, wasn't something that was readily done in first century. In the first century, let's just leave it at that. Because animals were utilitarian in nature, right? If you kill an ox for his beef, essentially what you're doing is you're tanking your tractor and you got nothing to carry your loads any longer. If you grill your goat, you're cutting off your future milk supply. So they have utilitarian value People aren't killing animals left and right. They didn't have this robust, high-production grocery and meat market like we do today. So there were only really two occasions where people would slaughter an animal for the sake of its meat. One, highly celebratory events, special occasions, wedding feasts, maybe the birth of a child, or like in in Luke 15, the return of the prodigal son. It's... It's a representation of high celebration. We are going to bear this cost of slaughtering this animal that we can have a robust feast in celebration of what is happening. That's one occasion, kind of commonplace, but still specific and special in nature. The other occasion would be in the realm of religious practice. A worshiper would bring an animal. Again, we've already talked about that this is high cost. They would bring it to a temple And they would take a portion of the animal and they would burn that meat so that way um, it would be a representation of giving to the deity. 
the meat would be would be burnt in totality in totality so that way it would be offered up to the deity then they would divide the remaining meat so the remaining two-thirds and one-third of it would go to the worshiper he would eat it and partake of it and it would be a symbol of that person having community and fellowship with the deity whom they are worshiping and then the remaining third would go to the priest who offered the sacrifice. It, it, was, it was a payment for his ministerial service. But you can imagine, if you're a full-time priest in either Jerusalem at the temple or in some other temple w- throughout the world, it's not a few hours before you start getting a surplus of meat. You're, you're not going to eat all of this in a single day. They don't have refrigerators, not a long shelf life with sitting meat. So what they do with that is they, they cycle it out. They started selling the meat, and it was readily available in the marketplace. There's several reasons why the purchase of this meat would be tantalizing for somebody in the marketplace. And again, that's why this is more in the realm of economics than in the realm of religious practice, even though religion is is highly connotated within this. This meat was the best meat. You don't offer a junky, old, thin ox to the deity that you believe controls your life. So this is robust, fatty meat. So it's high quality. Also, low price. Again, supply and demand. There's this high surplus of meat. So the temples, frankly, sold their meat for pretty cheap. It's high quality, cheap. And thirdly, because it was actually quite convenient. These temples oftentimes would have cafes or restaurant wings. So, so frankly, you, you just show up and you're like, oh, I didn't bring food today. And there's, there's this restaurant, this cafe nearby happens to be attached to a temple. It's meat that's sacrificed to an idol, but it's, it's good eating, high quality, and it's cheap. So there's, there's like this, this trinity of convenience, right? And so this is highly tantalizing. And so that's, that's frankly all you need to understand for this sermon in way of introduction. Now, uh, Nick last, re- last week read verses 1 through 6. So he covered that, but I'm being assigned 7 through 13, and yet I am going to read verses 4, 5, and 6, just so that way we don't start the sermon in the middle of an idea. So if you're already there, that's great. That means you're ahead of me. All right. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live." However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest anyone, or beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." 
Let's pray once more. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. This is your word, God, and frankly, this is the only portion of today's sermon that's going to be infallible and perfect. And even though we're going to spend more time hearing the commentary on this word, this word is the most important part of today's sermon. So I pray that this word would be fundamental, be foundational, and that we would not depart from the truths of your scripture, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's, let's talk about this, this passage that we read verse by verse. I'm going to set this down here. Paul starts out this passage with the term, however. So what is he springboarding? He's springboarding from this clause that he made that, yeah, there's only one God. We know that. You have knowledge, and that's great. That's commendable. There's only one God. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. What What Paul is saying is, within the context and realm of Corinth, these believers are almost exclusively people who have been saved out of this polytheistic culture. Now, the more mature ones understand that Christianity is a revelation of the one true penultimate preeminent God. It is the truth. These are the ones with the knowledge. They understand it. But to a younger believer, they may not quite get that. They're used to a context of polytheism. They may feel that in conversion to Jesus, which was a genuine conversion, all they really did was change their submission from one deity to this other one called Jesus. And it was a genuine conversion, but they don't quite understand the universal principles of Jesus' deity the theology that Jesus is the God over the universe and over anything. So they still have this consciousness of an idol. For them to eat this meat offered to the idol to that person with that weak conscience, it's theological adultery. They feel like it's going back and serving this idol when they've already chosen Jesus instead. So they have a weak conscience to that regard. And then Paul says, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. This is a portion of scripture that is really complicated. It's a very simple statement, but in in comparison to other portions of scripture, you kind of drop your hands. You're like, all right, a lot of the Old Testament is dietary laws. What are we talking here? And actually, in just a few months, when we get into chapter 10, Paul will then talk about talk about eating food offered to idols in such a way where he's like, don't do it because this is evil. And it gets very, very confusing. Essentially, the reason this, this verse is here in scripture is because of a superstition. There was this superstition in Corinth and in a lot of places of the world, even up to, frankly, medieval times and maybe even today in some parts, where there's this idea of there's this invisible realm of just demonic evil spirits hopping all over the place like fleas and they're looking for any opportunity to possess a person and so it was common knowledge or common thought common suspicion that when you have a plate of food 
be careful because the demon could jump on the burger and when you ingest it, you then ingest that demon and it possesses you. And it's like sin and debauchery and wickedness and evil spirits in pill form and you've just ingested it and now it's a part of you. Paul's saying that's not true. He's saying neither if we eat it are we the worst. Like if you eat a burger, don't worry about a flea-like demon on it. That's, that's not going to be the way it pans out. Before we get in, go any further, because after this verse, we're starting to lay down policies. Before we go any further, we need to understand that the application of these policies are for things that are in the realm of marginal, I hate to use the term gray areas, but that, that's close enough of a term where you guys can get the idea. This is about gray area issues where we aren't sure whether or not they're sins, and we don't know how to apply our obedience to the Lord. It's, it's not like, okay, it's like, consider Drano. I know this seems like a leap, but there's a point to it. Consider Drano. Do you know that on the label it says, do not drink? And you're like, oh my gosh, like, if you bought this stuff, you should know that all already. But, like, do not drink. This is not for drinking. It's got a different application. Think of it that way, that there are certain things that the Bible condemns that are poisonous, and we know that they are poisonous. So you cannot use these policies that we're going to learn in this portion of Scripture to defend things that are blatantly sin, even if your conscience isn't really harmed by the kinds of things that you're trying to do. That's, that's not an appropriate application of these policies. That's just a disclaimer that I have a responsibility to share, so we'll, we'll move on. Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. We have to talk about this term stumbling block because if you're a member of a Christian church or you've been around Christian people a long time, you've heard the term stumbling block or that stumbles me. It's like, it's, it's a euphemism and it's a hyperbole where people are saying like, what you're doing, it bothers me, it offends me and it offends my model of what a good Christian should be. Or, or, or for some people, it, it means it just, it kind of makes me feel icky. It stumbles me. You know, it, it offends me. And, and you know what? I, I know I made a joke about that, but there's, there's some genuineness to that. There's some validity to that, right? Like, we don't want to blatantly do things that are going to bother our brothers and sisters spiritually. Or if you have a discernment within yourself that you're feeling uncomfortable about something, maybe that's the Holy Spirit working in you about some underlying issue that you don't know about. However, that is not an appropriate way to use the term stumbling block. We've come too far away from the metaphor that we've forgotten what it actually means. The, stu- the term stumbling block is actually in a lot of places through Scripture, Old Testament as well as New. So we, we have a Hebrew word in the Old Testament that's translated to stumbling block, and we have a Greek term in the New, term in the New Testament that translates as stumbling block. The first place in Scripture where this term stumbling block is used is not in a metaphorical sense. It's in a literal sense. And it's a legislative clause. It's a law. It's in Leviticus 19.14. It says, You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Don't curse at blind people because they can't hear you. That's a messed up thing to do. Don't put a literal stumbling block in front of a blind man because they're vulnerable. They won't know it's there. They're going to trip over it and hurt themselves. The term stumbling block, when it's used as a metaphor, picture that image. A blind man walking, and somebody, for the reason of trickery or for cruelty, 
throws a big rock in front of them, knowing that they can't see it, they're going to walk right into it, trip over, hurt themselves, and fall into destruction. The term stumbling block as a metaphor means leading somebody on the path of sin. It does not mean offending them. It means leading them to where their vulnerability is going to lead them to have absolutely no choice but to fall into destruction. Paul says, don't let your freedoms be a stumbling block to your brethren. Don't let the things that you're doing because you feel free to do it be as if you're throwing a stone in front of a blind man and waiting for him to trip and fall. It's much more severe than just discomfort or offensive piety. It's leading somebody to where they're going to have absolutely no choice but to fall because of their own vulnerabilities, as if a blind man is walking towards a stumbling block intentionally put there. Paul lays those frameworks and then begins expanding upon this hypothetical scenario he made. If, if, if you don't quite remember where he left off, verse 7, he made this hypothetical situation. He says, consider a younger brother. Think of this guy who's born into the context of polytheism. He's newly converted to Jesus Christ, and he may not quite understand that Jesus is the one true God, but thinks that Jesus is one of one particular God of the many. He still has a consciousness of the idol, and now he's just rolling out that hypothetical. He says, imagine that person sees you who have knowledge of the one true God, Eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Imagine this guy, young believer, or, or gal, young believer, sees you who've been walking with the Lord for longer. He recognizes you. He's familiar with you because he's seen you in the gathering of the congregation, and frankly, he takes example from you. He says, that person has been in the gathering of the brethren for much longer than I am. What they're doing is what I should strive for. And then imagine that this younger brother sees you eating in this idol's temple, and he begins to think that this is a mark of spiritual maturity. If I could somehow build up this resilience within me that I won't be bothered by eating food offered to idols, it would be a sign that I've progressed and that I've been here a long time and I'm spiritually mature like this brother that I've seen in the church. His conscience becomes emboldened. He doesn't just think that I could do this. He says that I should do this. And eventually, he goes and he partakes in the food offered to idols. He trips over that stumbling block. And in the best case scenario, his conscience is damaged. He recognizes that he's sinned against God because in his mind, Because of his still weak conscience, he thinks, I've just committed spiritual adultery against Jesus with this other God out there. That's sad, but that's actually the best case scenario. This idea, again, of a stumbling block is you trip, you fall, and you're on like a chute or a slide that's going to lead you to a pit. A downhill, progressive, but inevitable destination. Imagine if this weaker brother partakes in the food offered to idols and says, well, that was fine. I'm not possessed. No flea demons, right? Oh, I'm still good. And then he realizes, I could probably partake in those other rites of this religious worship that are also as pleasing as eating this meat at a low price that's delicious and conveniently available. 
Now, it probably goes without saying, but along the lines of this idol worship, this pagan worship, were rituals of severe drunkenness. Frankly, sexual lewdness. A lot of these religious practices um, were, frankly, orgies. The priestesses of some of these religions were prostitutes. There was also human sacrifice involved. These are all things that somebody who's come out of the context of worship of this idol now has to deprive himself from those things and, you know, in some ways, sentimentally, probably misses those rituals. Being a Christian, they think, I kind of meet miss eating the good meat over at such and such temple. That was really good cooking. I kind of miss the, the drunken parties. I kind of miss the sexual freedoms. Then they see you eating in the temple. They say, oh, we can eat the delicious meats. And they think, can we go to the drunken parties? Can we have that same sexual freedom? So because of your liberties, this younger brother is led to destruction and he perishes. Paul says, because of your liberties shall a younger brother perish for whom Christ died. Paul doesn't hold anything back. He brings Jesus right into this. He says, Jesus died for this person. And what he's doing is juxtaposing the value of one decision for the other. He says, your food choice and your practices of convenience and money saving of groceries or the body of Christ, broken, tortured, humiliated, killed for this person's well-being. What's more important, you tell me. Paul's not an extremely soft teacher on this topic. Verse 12, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So he, again, he's, he's brought Christ into the equation. He's saying that you have Jesus's death to weigh against your liberties of gastronomic consumption, what's more important? And then he pushes it further. He says, when you lead your brother to stumble, you sin against Christ directly. It's, it's kind of weird. It's like, is he exaggerating? Like, how does, how does one make the leap of accidentally stumbling somebody to the realm of sinning directly against Jesus? That, that kind of comes into the the category of blasphemy, doesn't it? Sinning directly against the God. And the reason is, is this. It's summed up in, in the understanding of efforts, kind of like, like a war effort, right? Because what's Jesus' war effort for all believers? His war effort is to do whatever it takes that this sinner may be sanctified and redeemed that they may have fellowship with their God and drive them away from the sin that separates them from their God, Jesus will do whatever it takes. And he's proven that by way of the cross. Whatever it takes, Jesus will go out and find that lost sheep if it means him laying down his life life as the chief shepherd. He will do that. Whatever it takes. But you and your liberties have driven that person who's been saved at high cost in the other direction of Jesus' war effort. You've pushed them towards sin when Jesus is pressing against, against the sin itself and trying to push them in the other direction. You're pushing them toward it, and you're leading them to perish. You're tripping them, putting them down this chute that's got a very progressive and definite destination. And Jesus is trying to push them in the opposite direction. 
And when you do that, you sin against Christ. This is not a fringe issue. It's a God issue. You are degrading the value of Jesus' death and you are openly contradicting his efforts and yet you come on Sunday and claim that he's your God. Paul closes out this chapter saying, therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I'll never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is not another dietary law. That's not to say that Christians are not allowed to eat meat. What he's saying is, I will... I will umbrella the situation. For me, it's not a small matter of details. I will not do the bare minimum for the protection of my brother and for the honor and worship of my God. I am going to umbrella this thing. If eating food offered to idols is going to lead somebody to stumble and to perish and to destruction and sin against my God, then I would rather not eat any meat whatsoever so that way I don't make room for that. I would umbrella this thing because I love the young believers. There's something, there's something terribly adorable about youth, right? And it, you always find the young cute, no matter what age it is. Like, we all love babies. They're cute, small, and innocent. They don't know anything. And when, when you become in your 20-somethings, you realize that there is some sort of endearing cuteness and the vulnerability of a junior hire. And when you get a little bit older, you realize there's some sort of adorable cuteness in the angst of a teenager. And then I imagine as you get older than that for 20-somethings and as you get older than that for the middle-aged, we look back on the youth and we love them because of their vulnerability, their innocence, and their eagerness. Paul says, that's the way I feel for every young believer spiritually. I adore their, their innocence. I adore their eagerness. I adore the fact that they've not become jaded as we do with age and spiritual maturity. I'll do whatever it takes to build that person up rather than doing whatever it takes that might possibly break them down. Paul will not take risks against his younger brethren. Instead, he will, he will make greater commitments for their well-being I want to tell a story, and uh, in order to do so, I actually got to flip a slide. Hang on a sec. My phone's here. All right. This is John Russo, and his daughter is five years old. That's her right there. And this is a, a picture clipping from, from the news. It's been on a few different places. Uh, John and his wife, Alyssa, have two kids. One of them... Is, is a baby, the other one is this five-year-old girl. She has a severe peanut allergy, terribly severe. So much so that they don't go anywhere. They never leave the house without an EpiPen. They have to bring the EpiPen with them wherever they go because with a small exposure, she could be in terribly grave danger. And they say that they go to restaurants and they kind of almost harass their servers, which you don't do, right? Because they deal with your food. You don't bother your server. But they do that for the sake of making sure that no peanuts touch their daughter's food. Uh, on January 28th, Alyssa, who's, who's the mother and wife, she placed an order on Panera.com for an online service. This was in January 28th of this year. And she said, listen, uh, I want to get this for my husband, this for me, and for my daughter, I'm going to get a grilled cheese sandwich. Can there be anything that is 
not peanut-related more than a grilled cheese sandwich? Three, three ingredients, right? Butter, bread, and cheese. That's it. And then, let's see if we can wait. So this is the ordering form. She put a special instruction right here. Special instructions. Peanut allergy is having grilled cheese and one cookie. Please make sure both are safe for her. Thank you. She did it again, because remember, I said they're terribly persistent. Second place, prepared for has peanut allergy with strawberry yogurt. So it's, it's under the subtitle of the kids' grilled cheese. She put another special instruction. Again, this is for someone with a severe peanut allergy. So they get their food, they pick it up, they bring it home, and they start distributing their meals. Their daughter, who is five years old, is well-trained in her vulnerability. She knows that she is allergic to peanuts. She knows it well. She's had experiences. As I'm sure if you guys have any loved ones with severe allergies, you train them up. You say, you look for this, you don't eat this, you ask before you partake. And if your kids have severe allergies, they, they know what they can't have. Their five-year-old, which is pretty sharp for a five-year-old, she takes a bite and she tastes immediately what she recognizes as peanut butter. In a grilled cheese sandwich, remember that's what she ordered? A grilled cheese sandwich, she tastes peanut butter. So John, she, he grabs the sandwich, he opens up the, the bread, and he sees that what he described as one to two tablespoons of a dollop of peanut butter. She's just eaten it. And so they start freaking out. The first thing they do, they call their pediatrician, and they say, what do we do? Our daughter just ate peanut butter. And he said, all right, well, just give her Benadryl, so hopefully you can catch it in time, monitor her keep a close eye on her, and if, if for any reason things get worse, take her to the emergency room. So they're watching her, but it's not soon thereafter before she starts vomiting. She starts breaking out in, in what appears to be eventually hives. So John says, he'll stay home with our son. Alyssa, you take her to the emergency room. They go to the emergency room, and they spend all night there. Her hives are getting worse. She can't stop vomiting. And she's asking her mom repeatedly, Mom, am I going to die? Uh, fortunately, she ends up actually being okay. Uh, the next day, they release her from the hospital. She goes home. John, being a dad, was furious. So he calls Panera Bread, and he tells them what happens. He says, let me talk to a manager. So the manager of this middle six uh, Panera Bread Cafe is owned by a company called PR Restaurants. So this manager who works for PR Restaurants gets on, and he goes, listen, I think the person who was doing food prep that day, there was a language barrier. He didn't understand when it said no peanuts can touch this, and he thought it was um, like a special request for peanut butter. And so we're sorry. We're sorry? Like, my daughter was throwing up all night asking us if she's going to die. We're terrified. But what are you going to do? So, so John just kind of lets it go. But the story's not over. Because a couple months later, this March... Uh, a, a strange post showed up on No Nuts Moms, which is apparently a thing, uh, on Facebook. And it was, it was a mom from Wayland, Massachusetts, and she said, can you believe this? Somebody at Panera Bread just put two scoops of peanut butter in my son's grilled cheese sandwich. It happened again. John and Alyssa happened to see the story and think, this is terribly coincidental. They find out, that the Wayland branch of Panera Bread also owned by PR Restaurants. As of June 2016, the Russos filed lawsuit against PR Restaurants, and uh, that's, that's pending. We don't know what's going to happen with that. That was just a couple months ago. 
John was saying, I have to ask, is somebody doing this intentionally? For us, it was a mistake, a terrible, grievous mistake when you did that, but why did this happen again in a very similar circumstance? Is somebody intentionally targeting the weak? Like, what's going on? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I can tell by the look of your guys' faces, you feel outraged. And, and you should. Let's, uh, I, I briefly skipped over that, that image, but let's really quickly. That's the sandwich. That's not a small amount of peanut butter, whereas just small exposure to somebody who is adverse to peanuts is highly dangerous. If you're a parent with a child with a severe peanut allergy, you can't handle peanuts with your hands without washing them and sterilizing them before you know, touching your child. But she bit into that. So we should feel outraged, a five-year-old. And I think you do. I can see the look on your face. Can you imagine how terrified this five-year-old was? So terrified that she was asking between vomit spells, Mom, am I going to die? Imagine how scared Alyssa felt. She's probably reassuring her child and in her mind asking the same question, like, is my child going to die? Well, this illustration stands as an illustration of what happens when we lead our younger brothers and sisters into sin. An unexpected exposure in an apparently safe place that leads them to ask, maybe is my security, safety, or life at risk because of this exposure? I want to I push this uh, illustration just a little bit further. peanutallergy.com, which is apparently a thing. Uh, they, they wanted to, to gather some data to find out what would you do if your child or you are severely allergic to peanuts. Don't worry, you don't have to read that. I know the font's small. Um, and they asked, do you still have peanut products or peanut-related products in your home at all? Okay, I went. So an entry from a woman named, who goes by the handle Corvallis Mom. She put this on April 12th, 2002. She said, not on your life. Are DDs, pause. Do you guys know what DD is? That's mom blog for dearest daughter. Mom blog acronyms, right? Uh, our, our DD's first reaction was so serious that we couldn't bear the thought of it ever happening again. We wanted our house to be a zone of complete safety for her. I miss PN mom blog for peanuts. Peanut is one word, Corvallis mom. Uh, but we miss PN dreadfully, though whenever I go to get myself or my DH, dearest husband, a candy bar <laughs> or other treat, I pause and drool for a moment by the Butterfingers and the Baby Ruths, thinking I could just scarf it down in the car. It would probably be fine until I snap back into my senses and remember how long and awful the ride to the ER feels. Nothing and I really do mean nothing, will ever be worth that. Another one by Tucker's mom. Tucker's mom on April 12th, 2002 said, our house is free from all peanut products, may contains, and anything that is at all suspicious. It is the one place that we can relax about Tucker's safety and he knows he is safe. I love peanut butter, she put that in caps. I love peanut butter even though I know it's like anthrax to my son. 
so I snack on it at work. I always brush my teeth and wash my hands before I come home. My husband works at home, so he must deprive himself of candy he loves because he has nowhere else to get it. We would not have it any other way. We are in a state of high alert whenever we take Tucker anywhere else, so home is the only place where our blood pressures can turn normal. Don't think that if, if your kid has allergies, you have to be that extreme and kick everything out. You would be the best judge of that based upon the, how extreme and severe their allergies are. But I, I want to look at these ones, right? Because these kids, these parents have children who are, are so severely adverse to these products that they, they just kick them out of the home. And apparently these people love, in caps, PN. Um, that, that being said, if a family is pitted against a nutrageous bar and the life of their child, they're going to choose their child every time. Every time. And of course that's the case. It's supposed to be the case, right? We would never continually, haphazardly expose our children to foods that could potentially put their safety or their very lives at risk. And that's because, refer back to the title of this message, love is better than food and drink. Every time. Because we're talking about children, the young, the adorable, the innocent, the vulnerable those over whom God has put us as protectors and defenders for whom we are responsible. We're to defend the young. I think that the illustration bears itself well enough, but that is how we are to treat younger and more sensitive brethren in the Lord with, with adoration, with love, and with defensiveness, protectiveness. Uh, because, because it relates directly to the title, in what ways can food and drink cause us to sin? Well, gluttony, for one. I know that that's not one that we bring up a lot, but I personally, honestly, I struggle with gluttony. That's why I'm actually, I'm overweight, and my, my weight yo-yos, depending on whether or not I'm struggling successfully in victory, or laxadaisically in this struggle against the sin of gluttony. So for me, in, in application, if you want to take me out to dinner, please do. If you want to take me out to dinner, choose somewhere, you know, where you can bear that struggle in mind. Don't take me to Cheesecake Factory because they serve you on display platters, not on plates, display platters. The, the proportion is not proportionate at all. And, and, and I, it's, it's an embarrassing sin. It's kind of a humiliating sin, but I struggle with gluttony. I struggle with the self-control to not finish that display platter. Don't take me to a buffet. But you, do you know what, what always comes up in sermons about 1 Corinthians 8? It always comes up. Alcohol consumption. Every time. Sometimes, unfortunately, sermons on 1 Corinthians 8 exclusively turn into sermons about alcohol. Um, I, I do want to say that the Bible definitely doesn't condemn moderate reasonable frequency and measures of the consumption of alcohol. It does not. But it does condemn drunkenness, severe drunkenness, when you are brought under the influence of alcohol, even, even at a, you know, uh, a significant buzz category. You don't have to be walking around with the lampshade on your head to be under the influence. Paul says that we're to be, uh, you know, 
under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And he pits that against the idea of, of drug and alcohol use. Um, I'm not going to go on a tangent where I start talking about that Christians, so Christians should never consume alcohol. I'm not going to do that. But if you got nervous for a second that I would, that maybe that's an internal indication that your, your liberty value is off. You know, like, we have, to, we have to consider that with one another. Like, would you be willing to lay this down if the younger, the vulnerable, the adorable, whom you admire, is terribly sensitive and adverse to that? Uh, but I, w- I will talk a little bit about the application of that in my life. I personally don't uh, frequently drink alcohol. The re- reason being, beyond the fact that I just don't like the taste, uh, my family struggles with addiction, I also have brothers in arms back home who struggle with alcoholism, and it's kind of an, an effort for me in support of them to, to not in, indulge in regular, frequent, even reasonable measures of alcohol. And that is not a more mature position for me to take. It's just an applicable approach for me to take. There are allergies in the household, if you will, some of them belonging to people that I love, some of them belonging to me myself. So I vanquish my home. There's traces of it. You don't necessarily have to. I, I would just encourage that you examine the, the vulnerabilities of those you love and the vulnerabilities of yourself. But let's talk legalism. Legalists. Nobody likes a legalist. Nobody likes somebody who walks around and tells people what they can and can't do. Says, you can't watch this show because they do this, and watching somebody do that, it equates to you committing that, and you thinking that the show is funny means that you think it's funny and a light matter for people to indulge in sin. So as a Christian, you shouldn't watch it. If you watch it, you're not a Christian. Oh my gosh, nobody in a church can watch this. Nobody in our church is a Christian. Nobody likes that person. Nobody likes that person. God doesn't like that person. Paul says in Galatians, Paul says in Galatians, people like that have fallen from grace. Nobody likes that. Um, And so the litmus test is this. Is it a stumbling block? Refer back to the image we get in Leviticus about a blind man walking towards it. We're not talking about a fence. We're talking about danger. Leviticus doesn't say don't put a stumbling block in front of a Christian blind man because they know that stumbling blocks are made of stone and some people chisel stones into idols and it's an offense to his religious piety to have it in his presence. It's not that. It's like he's vulnerable. He's unsafe. Don't put it in front of him. He's going to get hurt. Somebody is going to get hurt. And so that's what we have to consider. The protection against legalists is to say, is this going to offend their piety? Or is it something that could potentially trip them? For bonus points, consider legalism as a sin. Would you be willing to stop doing something because it leads your brother toward the sin of legalism? That's a hard one. I don't know if I'd be able to. So what does this mean practically? I think that there should be a dialogue within your community and within your family right? It should be something along the lines of what are your struggles here are mine. It should be mutual. Don't come up. I know we're talking about the metaphor of kids, but don't come to someone and go, hey, little guy, what do you struggle with? Let me protect you. Like, don't, don't be ridiculous like that. God's put people in your life for you to protect spiritually, 
but he certainly put you in other people's lives for them to protect you because you're vulnerable in certain areas. So we have to, we have, to have a dialogue like that. We need to know that we are creating a safe household. I want to go back really quickly to what Tucker's mom said. She said, we would not have it any other way. We are in a state of high alert whenever we take Tucker anywhere else. So home is the only place where our, bro- where our blood pressures can return to normal. There's another uh, portion. Her post was ridiculous. So I, I didn't put this one in. It was really long. But there's this excerpt also at the very end of her post. She says, it is the one place that we can relax about Tucker's safety and he knows he's safe. She intentionally has made her household somewhere where her son would be safe though he faces faces peril everywhere he goes on a daily basis. And there are certain sins that are more prevalent in our society to where if a Christian that you know struggles with that sin, they're in peril everywhere they go. They're faced with dangers everywhere they go. They have to bear insecure protection everywhere they go. Let's not let the household be a God, the household of God be a place where that same vulnerable brother has to be just as on alert. The Bible pushes this metaphor of the church being a place where we have who Jesus calls our God, our Father. And it's this picture of Jesus going out and making a way to adopt these orphan, vagabond, unfit people, adopting them by way of the cross into the eternal household of God. We are a family under the hereditary of God our Father. And if you would willingly lay down a snack food that you really love for a younger brother, or your child, you should be willing to lay down a TV show or a practice or a music artist or a film type or anything that's going to be a protection of a younger, vulnerable brother over whom God has set you to protect and to defend. And I'm speaking this for me too. Just this weekend, I've, I've realized more and more the things that I do that, that spiritually put my family at risk. Terribly inappropriate. We need to ask within our communities, within our families, within our church, are we making for a safe home for the vulnerable? And we need to know what the allergies are before we start start ditching, dishing out the plates, right? We need to know this at the offset. But oh my gosh, what, what a high responsibility and what an unrealistic standard. Am I right? An unrealistic standard. Even, like, sure, you could stop watching... Some, some crazy lewd show for the sake of somebody, but could you really lay something down for somebody who is blatantly a legalist just to protect them from their legalism? That's really, really difficult. And frankly, it's unrealistic and impossible. How are you going to know what stumbles a brother? They don't even know what stumbles them. Our temptation triggers come from such weird places, right? Like, am I the only one where I'm just sitting at work and something pops in my head and I'm like, how did I get here? And it's like, okay, well, I thought of this line from this movie, from this person who was in this movie, in this movie that happened, and that reminded me of this, and I'm, oh my gosh, that's like nine moves. How did I get there? We cannot expect where our temptation triggers are going to come up, and yet we're supposed to be responsible for everybody's? Um, 
This is primary, too. It's primary. In 1 John, John says, we know that we've passed from death to life, meaning that's, that's kind of a, an alternate way he's saying we know that we're saved. We know that we're Christians, transformed and regenerated in the power of the Holy Spirit because we love our brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. This is primary. This is not a fringe extra credit thing. It's not who won the game and who got the most pass yards. This is primary. Yet, frankly, it, it's impossible. Don't think that the God who's calling you to do different thing, difficult things doesn't know that. In fact, it's in our Bibles. Luke 17 says, Then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Galatians 6 2 says, Temptations and offenses will come, but it better not come from in house. This is not a quote, but it's, a, it's kind of commentary over it. We need to proactively be bearing each other's burdens. That's the portion from Galatians. Bearing each other's burdens because they're heavy, they're difficult. So, how do we do that if we can't? If Jesus himself said it's impossible that offenses should not come, but we're supposed to try to make sure they don't come from us. The way that we do that is by enlisting in this co-op where the head of the co-op has achieved what we cannot. Yes, God is telling you to lay down every right of your own. You can't do that? That's okay. Enlist with Jesus who has. Jesus, by no obligation of his own, laid down his rights as, as God king, preeminent over all principalities, angels, humans, animals, on this earth and outside of this earth. He laid that right down to come and make a self-sacrifice for the fragile, for the vulnerable, that he may protect them, that he may defend them. Not because he had to, but because of love. You know, if, you, if, you, if your kid struggles with or has a severe allergy, you could be a total twerp about it and say, well, be careful not to eat the stuff on this shelf and also other stuff around. You better le- start learning how to read <laughs> your ingredients list. I suppose you could do that, but because you love and you want to protect, you won't. Jesus said greater love has no... Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. But just two more scripture references and we're going to close this out. It's important that we recognize that Jesus is the solution. Yes, we talked policy today. Yes, we talked rules and regulations of operation but the savior of our inability to be good friends, good family, good spouses, in protection of one another, the solution is not this policy. Because we cannot attain this policy. The solution is Jesus himself. Two more scripture references, and then we're going to close in prayer. Please hear this out. Hebrews 13, verses 11 through 12, the author of Hebrews is, re- is referring to animals being sacrificed. And he says, For the bodies of those animals 
whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. John 6, 55 through 56 says, My flesh is food indeed, this is Jesus talking, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We don't believe that the church literally ingests Jesus' flesh and blood. That's hyperbole saying, Jesus is explaining, I have intentionally, purposefully, and graciously reduced my holy sanctified body as king over all things, reduced it to sacrificed meat that you may receive for fellowship, for worship of the God whom you worship. Jesus has intentionally reduced himself, not for obligation, but for love. And in doing so, in you receiving that gift from Jesus, you abide in him. You will see that Jesus' efforts are imparted to you. You'll see that his victories have become attainable to you because you're abiding in the head of this co-op who's successfully done what we cannot. And we, we have to use this self-sacrifice and apply it into even the marginal gray areas of our lives, even the food and drink. Because love, and Jesus is love, is better than food and drink. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this word that you use as an opportunity to communicate the high cost of our salvation. Frankly, as I've learned recently, there are ways where I'm... uh, that I'm a bad father and a bad husband and a bad friend and a bad brother and a bad son. I can't live up to what you've required me to do. And that's either hopeless or it's referential to the cross. And in the times where your Holy Spirit is moving mightily within us, it is referential to the cross. We see that we need the cross. We need Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you've reduced you who are all things and for whom we were made. You reduce yourself to a pile of sacrificed meat burnt outside the camp among the disgusting, despising the shame of it all. We have to abide in you, Lord, and we pray that you would make that possible for us to do today. In Jesus' name, our sacrifice. Amen.